In Lebanon, where things often seem to only get worse, there have been a few bright spots of news. On Monday, a new government was confirmed for the first time in 13 months. It's common for them to argue for months, but this time, so much is at stake. And fuel is coming in, though it's off the books. It's been brought from Iran by Hezbollah, which could pose its own set of geopolitical problems. But this shipment will help power people's daily lives, because Lebanon is in dire need of fuel. It's the latest chapter in a seemingly bottomless freefall that's been going on for two years. The United Nations says at least 78% of the 6 million people are now poor. Shortages of gasoline and medicine are now common, with electricity only available for two hours a day. So could Lebanon finally be turning a corner? Or is optimism still out of sight? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I'm talking with Karim Shihayeb, a journalist who writes for Al Jazeera in Lebanon, and we started with the most immediate change, the fuel that's finally arrived. Two fuel shipments came in. One is state-sanctioned in a deal with the Iraqi government. The other is a Hezbollah broker deal with the Iranian government. The Hezbollah shipment brought in 33,000 tons of diesel fuel. But the source and how it got there is controversial and could potentially spark more problems for Lebanon than it solves. Fuel crisis has sparked political tensions in Lebanon. U.S.-sanctioned Iranian fuel arrives in Lebanon, brought overland from Syria, also under American sanctions. The fuel came from Iran. Hezbollah announced that they were getting some fuel from Iran and that a vessel was on its way. Nobody knew where it was going to dock. So obviously, the Iranian vessel couldn't dock at the Beirut port because it would violate U.S. sanctions. And people were scared that if it docked in Lebanon, the government would be hit with sanctions. However, the ship eventually docked in Banias in Syria. The Syrian government is a very close ally to Hezbollah. The fuel was unloaded and trucks started to pour into the country through northern Lebanon. It appears that it has not even crossed through official border crossings. So basically, by going into Syria, the Lebanese government has been absolved from being impacted by U.S. sanctions. But when the fuel arrived in a part of the country where Hezbollah has a lot of supporters, those concerns didn't seem top of mind. While lots of people in other parts of the country were sort of confused, worried, and baffled, the residents over there were celebrating, even though the leader of Hezbollah, Said Hassan Nasrallah, you know, issued a statement saying, you know, don't go out on the streets and celebrate. People were out firing machine guns into the air, firing rocket launchers into the air in celebration, fireworks, waving flags. They were chanting at those trucks. Even the trucks were honking their horns as they came in. It was seen as this huge victory that they have um, broken through an American blockade. It was pretty surreal to see this, you know, celebration and joy over fuel trucks. And I think that sort of paints the picture of how absurd the situation is in Lebanon right now. I think it's quite dystopic in many ways. So we're going to get back to the, the stickiness of having all those countries involved and those parties involved. Sure. But first, what kind of difference will fuel make in people's lives? 
this, the fuel crisis in Lebanon has reached the point where for many, it's really a matter of life and death, right? Hospitals have been trying to ration their fuel and electricity by turning off air conditioners and lobbies and offices in order to allocate that power to patient care. I was at a public hospital a week ago and at a cancer ward, the windows were open because they could not supply enough power for the air conditioners while wanting to make sure that the you know, medical equipment and, and the fridges were all working properly. Lebanon's crippling financial crisis is having a disastrous effect on the country's hospitals. With the current drastic fuel shortage, the exodus of medical workers and the lack of equipment and medicine, hospitals in Lebanon are fearing an imminent collapse. A couple of months ago, there was a doctor who told me that they had a patient that they wanted to discharge, but they didn't have electricity at home to power their oxygen machine, so they had to stay at the hospital. So it's not just about, you know, obnoxious power cuts that inconvenience your day. It, it is a hazard. The fuel crisis at this point has paralyzed the country. Most of the basic things that you see in a country don't exist at its full capacity in Lebanon. So how long will this fuel last? It's only meant to last a month or so. More shipments will be on the way, but a long-term solution, this is not. And even whether it's good news is something Karim says depends on who you ask. It's all temporary, really. It, will, it cannot uh, fit the full demand of what the Lebanese government needs to power the country and what the people need to make sure that they get the electricity that they need. Something that we do all the time here in Lebanon is that instead of actually getting to the root of the problem, we just kick the count down the road with slow band-aid solutions that will delay the problem by another couple of months. It could be a lifeline for some places, but of course there's going to be hesitancy because at the end of the day, it is political. If you are buying fuel or accepting fuel from a political party, that is parading this fuel as a big breakthrough of a so-called American siege on Lebanon, that's something that's up for debate, then you sort of feel like you're beholden to that party, right? It's, you know, in Lebanon, political parties often will do services for you and you're beholden to it in the sense that you have to vote for them, you have to show your loyalty to them. Now, before the economic crisis, these were things like scholarships, housing loans, public sector jobs. Today, it's fuel and medicine and uh, electricity. But it's the same system. It's just gone from basically elevating your life to the bare necessities. So you said that Hezbollah's view that this was an American siege that they had broken is up for debate. How widespread is that view? What is the debate? Well, there are some people who say that Lebanon is besieged by the international community because they're not sending developmental aid and let the country sort of fall to its knees because they're conditioning economic aid, not humanitarian aid, on wholesale reforms, whether it's restructuring economic sectors, whether it's passing anti-corruption laws and so on. But at the same time, there are people who are saying, actually, the economic crisis was of our own doing. It's the political leadership. It's the bankers. They played very dirty games. That didn't stop the international community from sending developmental aid to Lebanon for years. But the corruption and mismanagement did lead to an uprising in 2019. When there was an uprising where hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets and said, you know, we're sick of this. But yeah, I don't think it's, it's much of a debate that this crisis was of the authorities' own doing. That's for sure. If you have the same people who are ruling the country for several decades, and they take it from a post-war reconstruction mode when money is pouring into the country to rebuild, 
to going to a point where you can't power your streetlights on and you can't secure electricity to keep hospitals functioning at full capacity. I think the writing's on the wall when it comes to that, for sure. One key issue the international community has been pressing is for Lebanon to form a government. It fell apart in the wake of the explosion at the Beirut port last summer. Extraordinary images tonight of deadly explosions felt by millions in Lebanon. Blasts that shook a city and injured thousands. It was in a familiar form of political paralysis for more than a year. But the government was finally confirmed on Monday. This is the third attempt to form a government since the port explosion in Beirut just over a year ago now. Lebanon's new government meeting for the first time. They now face the unenviable task of ending what the World Bank is calling one of the world's worst economic crises since the mid-19th century. Though in a sign of the times, the actual process was delayed by a power outage and a broken generator. Another sign came from the new prime minister, Najib Miqati, or Mi'ati, as he's known in Lebanon. Lebanese leaders agreed a new government led by the Sunni Muslim tycoon Najib Mikati. He says he'll seek new IMF talks. He's a billionaire from Lebanon's second largest city, and he's been prime minister twice before. He isn't known for emotional speeches, but that's exactly what came out when the new government was announced. If a mother's eldest son leaves the country and she has tears in her eyes, she can't buy a Panadol or aspirin, she can't find it in the country. We all know this. We all feel this. The situation is difficult. The situation is very difficult. We all know this. But it is not impossible if we all come together as Lebanese. The government is under a lot of pressure to at least sort of stop Lebanon from this collapse. So Lebanon, I say, is like a crashing airplane that hasn't landed on the ground yet. It's still falling, and it has been falling for almost two years now. And this government cannot immediately create this recovery, but it can try. He is basically tasked right now to get Lebanon back on track by fixing these immediate crises, the fuel crisis, the medicine crises, all these things, and to get Lebanon talking with the IMF again for a bailout. And by doing that, the international community would be interested in discussing economic aid again. So it's an ardent task for sure. And it doesn't have a lot of time either because you have general elections in less than a year. It seems like at least in this instance, when it comes to the fuel, Hezbollah has stepped in to that vacuum. You mentioned the mixed feelings from different communities in different parts of Lebanon, but is part of this to recapture some of their lost popularity or to increase their popularity with the public? Yeah, I think everything that has happened recently with Hezbollah fuel barges and everything is, is linked to maintaining and or consolidating their political power. This is part of an ongoing patronage network that political parties across Lebanon do. But Hezbollah has that extra ability to go above and beyond. So during the fuel crisis, leaders from different parties would get containers of fuel and distribute it to their constituencies. But none of them actually got a fuel vessel and then sailed it around the Gulf and through the Red Sea into the country, let alone dock in another country and send trucks across the border. I think Hezbollah has been under a lot of pressure from the international community, particularly the United States, 
And I think they want to show to their supporters that no matter how bad things get, they will still find a way to secure things for them. They're saying that maybe we can't reverse the economic crisis, but we'll always figure out a way to get things through to you. And obviously, their hardcore supporters are very pleased. But for others, it makes them worried because, you know, for decades, people have been wanting Lebanon to be a viable state rather than a, a shell of a country where these different political parties and factions really run the place. So the dilemma for many really is, do we consent to this or not? We could be helping ourselves for a bit, but if we do, we're also consenting to something that many don't want to happen here. So it's a series of bad and other bad choices for many people in Lebanon. Can you spell out what it is that people don't want to happen if they were seen supporting Hezbollah and applauding this action? Yeah, so if, if you're a supporter of Hezbollah, you would want Lebanon to look eastward, as the Hezbollah leader once said. If the U.S. and the EU doesn't want to support Lebanon, let's look towards Iran and China, who are happy to do business. But for many people, the issue is that they don't want Lebanon to be part of this geopolitical chess game, which has been the case for a long time. They want Lebanon to function as a state that does not necessarily think about geopolitics, but thinks about the best way to serve its own people. So a lot of people don't mind trading with China or whatever. It's not that. But they don't want to be isolated from the EU and the United States and, and Canada and so on. So it's a very uncomfortable situation. And it's ambivalence. It's, it really is ambivalence, I think, for many. I know lots of people who don't support the party at all, but they say, well, if it means getting a few hospitals functioning, then so be it. But I just hope that we don't have to keep relying on it the way we once did. Are you optimistic based on everything we've talked about? Or are you at least less pessimistic? I don't know, to be honest. I think if I learned anything over the past two years, not just as someone who reports primarily on Lebanon, but also just as a human being, is that you just can't, you can't try and, and predict things anymore. The unexpected will probably happen. But one thing is for sure that no matter how bad things get in Lebanon, this sort of mosaic of ruling political parties are really, really resilient. Even after the Beirut explosion, for example, one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in history, and they're resisting the judicial investigation. They're sticking around. Even with the economic crisis, they're trading the blame between each other. And with this kind of resilience, you don't even know what's going to happen. But there is a possible chance that they might sort of try and at least over the next eight months control things a bit, stop the hemorrhaging, try and get the, the currency to stop fluctuating nonstop every day, try and get some electricity back and deal with the medicine shortages. And I think they will do it. But I don't know if it's for the right reasons, because now you're thinking parliament elections are just around the corner. So is this an opportunity to try and win votes? But if you set aside all this, I'm still not sure. <laughs> I'm still not sure. So it sounds like you don't you don't have an answer for if you're optimistic or not, but perhaps that comes from being a true realist. And it's interesting. I've never thought of using resilient with the connotation that you used it. Usually you think resilient and you think that's a positive. People are sticking through the tough times through any odds. But here it's politicians who are resilient, even in the face of so many signs saying that they should not be in the power that they have. So do you find in your reporting 
and it, with the people that you're talking to, that there does seem to be a shift in momentum, a shift in and feeling that things are changing for Lebanon. For a lot of people, you know, their major victory, which at one point was overthrowing the government and starting something new, has become getting a visa and living somewhere abroad and securing a job in Europe or the US or the Gulf or what have you. So I think change is inevitable, right? Nothing is forever. I think any sort of windfall is good. But in the next couple of weeks, when the cabinet gets to work, we'll really see how things go. But unfortunately, I think more people at this point are either saying, I have zero expectations because it's the same old song and dance, it's the same people. And other people were saying, you know what, if I can get electricity, if I can find the medicines I want at the pharmacy, and if I can buy food without compromising my family's diet, then whatever, let them do whatever they want. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Dina Kisbe, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, Priyanka Tilve, Nagin Oliai, Ruby Zaman, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Fenton is our editor. Aya El-Milek is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back on Friday.